from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. This podcast will navigate the problems that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences as underrepresented professionals in the music industry. Our guest today is Marie-Hélène Bernard, who served as president and CEO of the Canton Symphony Orchestra from 2005 to 2007. She went on to serve as executive director and CEO of the Handel and Haydn Society in Boston and has been president and CEO of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra since 2015. Marie-Hélène Bernard, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It is so lovely to have you today. So just starting off, can you tell us a little bit about your career path and what led you to your position at St. Louis? So I grew up in a family of, of musicians, uh, came from my mother's side, um, a family that was really involved in music. They were pioneers in reviving early music in North America. So I grew up in an environment where music was um, part of everyday's life, and, and so was literature and art. And Bach, Johann Sebastian <laughs> Bach, was a composer that I grew up with. So my love developed over time. I became a musician and played professionally at a very young age, mm -hmm. but chose to go to law school, became a tax attorney and mm. practiced tax law in Canada for seven years. And the, 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 the desire to make music accessible to all, to support artists, and the fact that I, I miss music and wanted to work in the music business brought me to the U.S. to work in orchestra management. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Excellent. So you are a female CEO of a major American orchestra, and you are not the only female CEO, but you are certainly in the minority in this aspect. And while the performers on stage, ever since the advent of the behind-the-screen audition, the gender balance has pretty much evened out on stage. This isn't the same in the highest levels of arts management. Why do you think that is? Well, that's a big question. So um, 20 years ago, there were about four women leading major orchestras. Mm -hmm. There's many women executives leading medium size and smaller size orchestras in right. our country. So I don't want us to lose sight of this. Right. And the nonprofit world has been, I think, majority female for quite some time. Mm -hmm. and, and I have my theory about why that is. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, um, the growth of diversity among major orchestras on the stage with us anyway in St. Louis started in the 60s mm -hmm. when the number of women musicians grew over time. Mm -hmm. We were, I think, the first American orchestra, major orchestra to appoint a, a, a female a principal trumpet mm -hmm. and first to appoint a female African-American violinist and so on and so forth. Currently, actually, the gender balance is probably more women within our ranks than men. And the addition of Behind the Curtains, which we instituted in 1971, have probably been contributing to lessening the biases that 
could take place when someone auditions for for a job mm -hmm. but the 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 issue or the topic of audition is a complex one so i'm going to put this aside mm -hmm. why there are fewer women leading major orchestras i think it's a matter of leadership development and I will encourage you to read this a study, and I can send it to you, Rachel, that mm -hmm. Horn Ferry published in the fall of 2018 mm -hmm. on female leadership. Um, they interviewed 35 of the top CEOs of for-profit organizations, companies in the country, and asked these women, what led you to become a CEO? And only 12% of them um, knew from an early, early age that they wanted to become executives and it's mentoring, nurturing talent mm -hmm. and people they met along the way, mostly mm -hmm. men who mm -hmm. saw in them leadership abilities that would make them great CEOs. Mm -hmm. So 20 years ago, there were about four women leading major orchestras. When I became a CEO of the St. Louis Symphony in 2015, suddenly we doubled that number. Several major orchestras appointed mm -hmm. women to the top executive role. I think the, 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 the way this industry can become more diverse at the top, not just in gender, mm -hmm. but in, in, in all types of diversity, it is to create a pipeline and right. to train and nurture talent. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to meet people who believed in me and created a pathway and gave me the confidence to, to, to do this job. And I think all of us men and women have a duty to ensure that we recruit the talent and that we nurture it. Right. Right. I think, yeah, I, I think it's interesting how a lot of people have that similar reaction. And it, it's, I've been really blessed that I work for a female CEO, uh, uh -huh. which has been really awesome for me to start off my career in that position and to have that sort of mentorship at the beginning. Uh, right. But e even, you know, you've, you've been in this field and you, you have quite uh, the resume. Have you ever felt that because of your gender, you were, people were biased against you or decisions that you made, whether explicitly or implicitly? Uh, probably implicitly, but again, it's interesting. We all come with a very personal experience mm -hmm. to it. I'm, I'm a daughter of an immigrant and I'm an immigrant myself. And I think I've had more struggles as an immigrant mm. in, in America than I have been being a woman mm. in a top executive position. Interesting. Um, and, and it's, it's very simple. Every human being's desire is to be accepted and to be part of a community that is accepting and inclusive. To me, inclusiveness is as important as diversity. Right. Um, you know, and that's why in the work that a lot of orchestras and a lot of institutions are doing right now is the work around equity, diversity, right. and inclusion. Diversity is a piece of it, mm -hmm. but equity is to create equal access. So mm -hmm. as a woman, I always felt that male colleagues who were my supervisors or mentors created equal access um, for me mm -hmm. um, compared to my male uh, peers. Inclusion is to feel included, to mm -hmm. feel that you can be accepted. And right. as an immigrant, you know, sometimes people forget because I'm a white woman mm. that there's major adjustments that are needed in the way, you know, I speak language, culture, affiliation to the American culture, which is different. Right. So, and that at times has been more challenging than being a woman in, in my position. Yeah. Naturally, I have not been someone who has questioned people's reaction to my decisions or interaction with me because I was a woman. Mm -hmm. And I'm blessed that way. And I, I was raised by a very free woman and she was not, she was a feminist in, in her own ways, but she never 
she was not an activist, but she never made me believe that she always encouraged me to do what I wanted in life and never gave me the impression that there would be any barrier because of my gender mm. ever. Mm. So it has never come to me as a, 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 a source of concern. And I have never felt a lack of confidence because I was a woman. Mm. That said, have I been in situations where someone was dismissive or not giving me credibility or not giving me a voice because of what I was a woman? Certainly. Mm. Have I been in situations where male peers or have not been responding to my leadership as well? Sure. But the, being a leader is adjusting for me. It's adjusting your leadership style so you can get the best of everyone you work for. Mm. So I never got stopped by someone not res responding to my leadership. Actually, for me, it was an exciting challenge to say, how can I get this person respond mm. and really thrive in their job? What can I do as a leader differently? Mm. Um, so I think I have seen this as a challenge. And for women, obviously, um, and especially in this country, a situation where someone would respond to the fact that I'm a woman and would be charmed by the fact that I'm a woman, I have never been offended by that. Mm. Actually, I have um, really been very generous about accepting that someone might respond to me in a way that probably would be perceived as sexist at times um, in ways that I'm thinking, let's accept that person's nice remarks, but let's move on. Mm -hmm. Let's not make this the issue or the, let's not, I'm not going to make my gender be diminished by someone who might mm -hmm. make compliments to me about the way I look right. or the way I walk or, uh, you know, I tend to be very positive about these things and move on. And it's probably kind of the teaching that my mother gave me. Um, she said, just accept the compliments as they come, but move on. If you are slightly offended or that you're feeling that this is inappropriate given the circumstances right. and be strong enough to be able to tell someone that it's offensive if you feel that way. Right. I've been fortunate that I have never really felt in a work environment that my gender was non-enabling me to do things that others can do. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that that perspective of of it's going to happen because of the of, of the nature of uh, the, the United States as a country, but just like taking it as it comes, but focusing more on your job and what you're doing and and and, and lifting up the people around you as opposed to giving a voice to what just happened, but instead just absolutely, moving on. Absolutely, I think and, that's and you know as really leaders. Great. You know, leadership is about many things, but it's not about gender. Leadership is right. about creating a, a, a team work around a core mission and motivating and developing talent. And it's aligning an institution around uh, key goals, objectives, and, and mission. And I think, and I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I recruited a, a young women conductor. And at some point I introduced her to a member of our board as our new young female conductor. And I apologized to her afterwards because if that woman had been Matthew, I would not have introduced Matthew as this young male conductor. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the board member had eyes. You could see that Matthew is a man. And then right. so, you know, the awareness as a leader, that leadership is not about gender, mm. but it's 
you know, the way you verbalize the right. recognition that someone is of a different race or different gender and how, how can we be careful about this? Right. Because what we do is we recruit talent and the best talent possible. Right. And our, my job is to nurture that talent and advance it. Will I make a more concerted effort to nurture female talent versus male talent? At times I will, depending on right. what I, I feel is, right. is, is necessary. Right. But I would want a white male to get equal opportunities as a female, white female, and, and anyone of, of, of other racial diversity. I think it's believing in talent mm -hmm. and not let gender or other attributes be a um, barrier mm -hmm. to, to a career development, rather be an asset. Right. I think that's, that's a great perspective, and I really like the way you put that. I think that's wonderful. So what do you think are some ways that the perspectives that a man and a woman can bring to executive leadership differ, if any? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I think, I think there are differences. It's hard for me to generalize. I want to be cautious about generalizing the way men behave or lead and the way women behave mm -hmm. and lead, because I've seen... Remarkable qualities on both sides. And I do believe that diversity of voices is important to balance and to reach the best decision making. And again, I don't see, I have seen extraordinary male leaders be amazing communicators and same in, in women. I, would, I will give you an image. Um, the woman is like, if you imagine a dresser in your bedroom and with lots of drawers, women tend to have many drawers open and they juggle and multitask and um, provide sometimes a nimbleness of thinking and communication, empathy, whereas men often will take open one drawer and deal with one drawer at a time. Mm. I see it in my own marriage is that oftentimes I'm juggling with eight various things happening at once and I excel and thrive on having multiple challenges and thinking about everything and planning and mm -hmm. while i do eight of these things my companion probably does one thing very well <laughs> yeah um that said it's a generalization i think i have probably been uh trying to be a very empathetic empathic empathic empathetic but you see i can't say empathetic this. empathetic uh, a leader that that shows great empathy yeah. and i do believe in transparency and communication. And I have seen men ex express the same, the same values when, when they lead. So it's hard for me to say, what are the differences? There's probably studies that mm -hmm. outline clear differences in leadership. And I just read something uh, from Harvard recently on that topic. Um, and for me, I uh, think of leadership as a painting and of different colors. And I know that my colors are very bright and very mixed, and I think there's different textures. And sometimes some of my male peers have been more um, one color, one type. Is it worse? No, it's a different style. So it's just a different style of, of painting. Mm -hmm. So that's how I would express the differences. Right. And I do believe that that leadership can be very strong either way, right. that there is no it's better with women. It's 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 better with men, really. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And as a as um, a leader, 
you've probably had to make major changes or big decisions for an organization that maybe were unpopular to start with. How do you deal with um, having to make those unpopular decisions and do people eventually come around to it? Or um, what, what do you do to balance what's best for the organization versus what people think is, is best? Right. And, and that's always hard. And every change is not always welcome mm-hmm. by everyone, even if you take the, the most careful approach. And I've made my mistakes and I've learned along the way. I think as a leader, um, accepting that you can't please everybody all the time, but knowing that you took the right approach and that you've been listening and you've been following the right process, that people will, will at the end have to choose whether they embrace the change or not. And I have in my, for example, in my five years here, I always tell leaders it takes a good three years before you see the directions that Mm -hmm. you're envisioning for an an organization truly gelling and and crystallizing into creating alignment for the future. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that what exists is bad or it's, it's that a leader will come with very clear ideas about how advancing the mission of an organization and sometimes I've had excellent colleagues who, when I came and started institution and, and, and you know making changes institutionally, realized that they were somewhere in, else in their career and they had been with the institution 10 years or more and felt like they were ready for a change. And I work with them mm-hmm. to help them see that transformation. It's mm-hmm. and I'm always invested in someone's career. What is it that you aspire to? Where are you in your career here? What can we do to make you a more effective leader, a more invested employee? And what are the things in accepting that sometimes people have come to full cycle mm-hmm. and it's time for them to move on. And my job as a leader is to enable them to make that change and transformation. And, and while I never like to see employees leave, I f- think I see this as a success when someone has been groomed here internally and has evolved in their career with us and reaches a point where they're ready for a new adventure and we lose them, for me, it's an amazing achievement to say, this person has been with us, has developed as a leader and now is ready to move on. Mm -hmm. And when I look at my mentors and they look back on how many leaders they have nurtured and trained in the country, there's extraordinary satisfaction when you are end of career, which is not my case, but for my colleagues who are much more seasoned and have been mentors to me, for them to look back and see that five or six of their you know, pupils mm-hmm. are now running major orchestras, yeah. medium-sized orchestras. So I think there's something great about this. The change is, is always challenging and it's always different. You can learn about effective change in one organization and you're going to try to apply the same um, principles with another organization, and it will be different. And that's mm-hmm. what I've learned is that change, even when you learn how to handle it, you can never be guaranteed. And it's always going to be different. The mm-hmm. way people react, the way an organization is going to adapt to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a timing issue, you know, learning how to pace yourself, learning when an organization is ready to make and embrace those changes. Mm -hmm. And at times I have made changes too fast. Sometimes I have made them too slowly. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's part of the leadership game. Right, right. So one of the things that uh, any CEO of an arts organization and orchestra being no exception, 
has to deal with, and especially regarding the idea of making changes, big changes, is relating with the board. Tell us yeah. a little bit about your experience working with the board, the various boards that you have worked with over your years. Yeah. So I have never made significant changes to a board without nurturing the talent and developing the board. That's my number one rule. And, and the life of a board is a long life. So I don't believe in quick fixes. Um, and I always start with the assumption that a board needs to be uh, better educated and nurtured and truly engaged before you see what changes are 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 uh, needed, especially on a team on staff. It's almost easier because you you have daily interactions and you work and this is your job and then you work with a team day in day out. The board is different. They're volunteers. They're giving their time and their passion and their network and support. And, and it takes time. And depending on the size of a board, it might take even longer to see where are the assets of this board? Where are the talents that might be missing? And where how can we engage the board better? So I think that what I did here, for example, is I took a good two years to get to know our board and really question how are we developing this board? How, what are the re recruitment um, goals? How are we using their skills and network and talent? How are we educating them? And I mean, educating, educating in a sense of um, connecting them to the mission and giving them the tools they need to be solid and good advocates in the community. You can't expect board members to know naturally necessarily what to do unless they have the tools and understand with clarity what their role is so we did a strategic plan i got to know the board and then two years later we did we 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 looked at our governance structure is it working what needs to improve what what's missing not in terms of people but rather in terms of process and today i must say after five years we have a very engaged board it's a wonderful board there's a natural um uh, there are natural cycles that happen is that over a certain period of a few years about you know a fourth of your board is rotating off and then you bring new people and I think equity diversity and inclusion is at the center of our work so we want a board that is as reflective as possible of the makeup of our society and and I think the change there is very slow and it needs to come from them as well so I am an agent. Um, I create the platform and I, I provide the tools and I develop them, but they are the ones leading truly that change and how they see their board mm -hmm. um, go through that evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in boards in America, and we talked about this a little bit before about, you know, women in leadership positions at the board level. Do you see that there is a change in the makeup of boards for orchestras that is including more um, inclusivity and, and diversity at the board level? I think so. It's a slow progress and it depends, every community is is really um, different. Um, but but it is our progress also is intentional and it's and it's slow. Um, because I don't want to put people on the board just for the sake of it. I just want to make sure we nurture relationships and that people who join this board are committed, are committed to the mission entirely. 
So I think that the diversification, diversification, I can say, towards <laughs> becoming more diverse will it will evolve, and, right. and I think we will see changes. But it has to be intentional. And what I mean by that is that the board needs to take ownership of this right. and have clarity about what kind of boards they want in five, ten years. Mm. But it does take sometimes a decade before mm -hmm. you start seeing significant changes so i think it's it's um it's patience it's patience it's just really but you have to be very very intentional about it mm -hmm. so st louis is mm -hmm. a very racially diverse place and mm -hmm. yep. was in the news several years back for mm -hmm. one of the police shootings that sparked the black lives matter mm -hmm. movement and we uh have learned a little bit about the St. Louis Symphony's in unison partnership with 33 African-American churches to help widen the orchestra's audience. Tell us about this program and how it impacts the community. So the program was started now probably 26 or 27 years ago. Uh, and the program has several components. So first, it's a chorus of 120 voices, which mission is to promote and perform music by African and African-American composers or black or brown composers. Um, and, and the repertoire has evolved quite a bit over the last 25 years. They typically perform three concerts at Power Hall, which is our home. And they always do an a cappella concert in one of our church partners every year. Um, we work with about now it's probably 35 churches, African church, African American churches across the region in different communities. So some churches are actually in more affluent communities and others are in more underserved communities. And what we do is we have coordinators that are affiliated with every church. And we, with our musicians, go visit these churches throughout the year. So we are going to have a presence during the church service. And each coordinator's role is to connect their church to the symphony and also to, to help with recruitment of chorus members and also to help with sales of tickets at concerts that take place here at Powell Hall. Mm -hmm. Another component of the Immunism program is a, a mentoring fellowship program that enables young African-Americans to uh, get exposed to arts administration and to develop a career in arts administrations, uh, administration if they wish. And currently on my staff, three members of my current staff, two of them have gone through the program. And over the years, I have recruited and hired mm -hmm. people uh, coming out of the program. So it's a college degree and we're a part of it and we're actually subsidizing a part of their education there. So that's a very important piece of it. Wow. And um, the third piece is we have a peer-to-peer -peer program. We have a youth symphony orchestra that is one of the, the longest established in the country. It was founded in 1971 by Leonard Slatkin. And we're one of the few major orchestras that has a youth orchestra that's embedded in its infrastructure. Um, but I have young players in the youth orchestra. The age range is about 12 to 21 have young players in a youth orchestra who become mentors to young African-American players who might not be in a youth orchestra yet to help them aspire to audition and to uh, join the youth orchestra. And so it's teenagers mentoring teenagers on, on, on specific instruments. So the peer-to-peer -peer program is quite phenomenal and has expanded quite a bit this year. I think we are going to have up to, I'm going to say about 16 young students who are, who are studying music and are getting mentoring from youth orchestra members. 
And there's other components to the program, but in a nutshell, it's our work in the churches, it's our work with the course, and it's our work with fostering and nurturing African-American talent so that in 10 years from now, or even mm. before, and eventually we can groom more diverse talent in yeah. orchestra management. And that my ultimate goal is to see more diverse executive mm -hmm. in the offices of president, CEO, or CFO, or chief uh, right. of the office. Yeah. That's Absolutely. That, yeah, that's that pipeline you were talking about earlier yeah, and, and yeah, creating this. Pipeline, yeah. Which is the same pipeline with the board. Right. We created an advisory council a few years ago. They are non-voting members of the board. And so they get a lot of information. And I'm using the advisory council, which uh, includes a, about 30 younger professionals, a lot of them more diverse, to start grooming them to aspire to board leadership mm. a, a, a few years later. Yeah. There is really not many programs or mechanisms for young professionals to learn about nonprofit governance mm -hmm. and know how to develop the skill sets and the thinking and the knowledge that would make them effective board members sometimes one day. And oftentimes people are thrown onto boards mm -hmm. without much training right. and organizations expect them to be good board members. <laughs> and I realize over the years that our duty as nonprofit organizations is to ensure that if we recruit, train and nurture staff talent right. and musicians and young people to become part of the fabric of our organization, the same duty we owe to professionals in the community who will join our boards mm -hmm. is that the training and education is as a necessity as it is for any member of the team. So we're truly focused on the concept of training, learning, nurturing talents, because I think at the end, I do believe that will make us a much more effective organization. Right. Um, you know, right now we're in this COVID-19 pandemic that has mm -hmm. really <laughs> shaken things up for a lot of people. Yeah. So yeah. I wondered if you could just take a little bit of time, you know, you've been at St. Louis for five years to maybe share what you did before the pandemic to try to uh, keep St. Louis relevant and moving forward. And then uh -huh. how, how has that kind of maybe had to shift now as you're looking towards the future of St. Louis? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what we do is about relationship, right? So it's investing in relationships and connecting communities around music. The art of gathering is only one aspect of how we are uh, advancing our role as you know, creator of music, connector, performer, educator. Mm -hmm. So the one thing that was very clear to me when I joined this organization is the amazing loyalty of, of the St. Louis audience and our donor base. But what I did is, is focused on relationship building and relationship development. Because at the end of the day, a lot of my work is around philanthropy, but a lot of the essence of this nonprofit organization and the foundation of its success is how you develop relationship with the community. How do you give back? This is not about us being so great and being there for people to come to us, is my philosophy as we go to them. Mm -hmm. and, and you create this sense of connection and inclusiveness that, that makes them want to come to mm -hmm. you. And ultimately, sometimes people ask me, you know, when you're when you step away from this role, what do you have hope to, to achieve? And, and my hope is for everyone in this community to say, this is my orchestra. Mm. I love this place. This is where it's home for me. And I feel welcome. And I've, I'm hearing great music and I'm so proud. And this is something that becomes 
um, a, a great source of satisfaction in my life. And to say that every child in this community has received a thorough music education mm -hmm. from pre-K pre to 12 would be an amazing achievement. Right. So to answer your question is I've built on a very strong relationship over time with the orchestra, of course, with the staff, with our board, but also with our donor community and our, with our audience. And it's, it's a sense of developing a sense of respect that you listen to them and then you value their support and you never take it for granted. Right. But when the pandemic hit, what I discovered after we surveyed them earlier on to find out what is it that you want to hear, what kind of programming do you want to see now that we can't be in person, the level of trust for our organization was extraordinarily high. Mm. And I told my team, this is phenomenal. This is speaking of the way we have nurtured this relationship, but never take that trust for granted. So you need to nurture it. We, we, we acquired it, we gained it, you can't lose it. Right. You need to continue to nurture this. Right. So saying thank you, being grateful, continuing to listen to what they want and to balance this kind of offering so that you always stretch the boundaries of creativity in a way that you never remain stale as an artist and as a performing organization mm -hmm. is that the exploration continues and that learning is at the essence of what we do. It's not just for children to get a music education. Right. It's like, how do you stimulate people's minds and heart so that music is for them? So the right. whole concept of making music accessible to all has been our driver and continues to be. Mm -hmm. So the pandemic has not changed much other than us understanding that the power of connection is really amazing. Mm -hmm. And what we did is it's how you deliver the program. So we did a lot of lectures online and ways, given ways to a community to connect through music online mm -hmm. and resumed live performances in September and October outdoors. And since the weather has been a lot cooler, we have performed regular concerts every week, every week indoors with smaller audiences and a reduced orchestra and and the, the musical explorations are extraordinary mm. we're playing a lot of repertoire we haven't had a chance to do lately we're yeah. doing 60 minute concerts starting at 7 30 on weeknights and weekends um, three o'clock on sundays and occasionally 11 o'clock on friday morning and the demand has been really wonderful wow. it's a small audience right. but it's an audience that feels safe and they right. want to be there and the orchestra has felt really safe um, providing this uh, this musical ex uh, adventure over time there will be new initiative we started during the covid uh, crisis that will will remain mm -hmm. and we will probably explore ways to rethink some aspects of our business once we pass the worst wave right. of the pandemic right for sure so our podcast is called orchestrating change yeah. So before we let you go, any final thoughts about how we and our listeners can orchestrate change going forward in this, in this, uh, the world of orchestral music uh, to make it more inclusive and representative of the world we serve? Yeah, I think change, um, change is, is the mechanism, right? So you work with people and music is about people and relationship. It's about storytelling. So my thinking about change is, is to have clarity about why the change mm -hmm. and, and also um, having clear sense to, to, about the objectives and really to bring everyone within an institution to align around the why and, and the path 
to the pathway to, to change and to embrace the framework. And I think it's work that needs to be done you know, as a collective. Uh, no organization can affect change successfully, especially when it comes to equity, diversity, and inclusion without including all the voices. Mm -hmm. And you know, we are a very divided nation at this moment. And the lesson from this is that we have to learn again to disagree and we'll have to learn again to respect differences. That's gonna make us much stronger. And equity, diversity, and inclusion starts with understanding and respecting differences and having faith that with dialogue and with human relationships and developing connection that we can come to terms with differences. And more than ever, this is really the driver of everything, the underlying uh, theme of our daily lives and of our societies. So I encourage everyone to take a deep breath and understand that change doesn't happen overnight, but the investment that we make today will impact generations in 25, 50, 100 years. Our orchestra has been around for 141 years, and I recognize the mistakes of the past, but I can only improve the future. Mm. Yeah. Marie-Hélène Bernard, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with Thank you this you. morning. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Marie-Hélène Bernard has been the CEO of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra since 2015 and previously served here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra from 2005 to 2007. An offering of the Baldwin-Wallace University Community Arts School, the BW Men's Chorus is currently seeking men, high school age, and up with some background in music who are looking to join one of the region's most vibrant choral communities. Until it is safe to resume in-person rehearsals and concerts, the chorus invites those interested to register for the Still Connected series, a robust program of virtual workshops, networking opportunities, and performances. For more information on how you can get involved, please visit bwcommunityarts.bw.edu, email cas at bw.edu, or call 440-826-2365. Sing on. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.